The Innovators Network. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation. 60 minutes that could save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org. In partnership with Cardiovascular System Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm with Dr. John Phillips. Of course, I'm Kim McNicholas. Today, we're going to be talking about fibroids as an indicator of cardiovascular risk. Interesting, right? We're also going to be talking about new minimally invasive treatment options for fibroids, that may prevent an invasive, life-changing hysterectomy. So get your questions ready. Call in if you're listening live and join the discussion. Write this number down, 1-888-367-5329, 1-888-367-5329. And get those questions in. Get in the queue sooner rather than later. We'll get you on. We'll get your questions answered. Right, John? Indeed. Kim, how was your week? You uh, you look better. You sound better. You uh, weathered the COVID storm. Yeah, that COVID is the gift that keeps on giving. It, it just likes to linger. It likes to hang on as long as it can. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> but yeah, and definitely on the mend. And it was just in time because, you know, I spent half the day yesterday over at Adventist Hospital over in St. Helena, It turns out a star interventional cardiologist moved here from Colorado to the middle of nowhere in the Napa Valley. Beautiful wine country. It's a hospital that is set in the hills. I kept going and going. And once I got beyond the vineyards, I thought, is there anything beyond the vineyards? (laughs) There was a hospital laid right into, into the hill. We had a patient who is also an obstetrician who had called me last week and said, oh, my gosh. I have gangrenous toes. What am I going to do? I need more blood flow. Do you know anyone? And I said, well, I just found out Dr. Armstrong is there. And turns out he was on call. And as we're sitting there, he had two ruptured aneurysms. He then had a life flight come in for um, a heart attack. And it was just like one thing after another, emergency after emergency. So he's a true warrior He finally got into our patient at one o'clock this morning and the patient was like, yeah, I agree. Let's wait till tomorrow. So they're now still awaiting the the limb saving procedure. But it's amazing to me just honoring doctors who literally go all out and exhaust all efforts to save life and limb like that. And the on-call doctors over the weekend, just more power to you. We appreciate you so much. Yeah, it's 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 never fun, but it's part of the job, and it's the part. You know, we signed up for it, so you just have to. Again, you have to triage patients, which is what he was doing, and, and clearly, um, maybe at one o'clock in the morning, not the best time to start a complex procedure. So we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> so you going to inspire us before we get into our conversation about fibroids? By the way, you know, you're sitting. <laughs> you're in a you car. hear me? Okay. Doctor, is yes. driving back from vacation. Where were you? 
Uh, we were in the Poconos, and we just left. I didn't know this town existed, but it's called Jim Thorpe. And um, he was a great athlete, probably the best uh, multi-sport athlete ever. Uh, and I took, I've got a quote from him, and he says, I was never content unless I was trying my skill or testing my endurance. So clearly, Dr. Armstrong was testing his endurance this weekend. <laughs> Definitely was. I mean, that is the most apropos quote of the day, especially for today. And, and you know, even Dr. John Runback with American Endovascular in New York, he is expected to join us at some point. He is also on call. And not only do you doctors, I mean, you work during the week and then you end up with these on-call shifts. Do you, how in the world do you just keep going? Is it the adrenaline rush and just having that human connection to people and commitment to, to saving every single person that comes your way? Is there some sort of extra special rush of B12 that you get? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, again, I think when you're in the, the heart of the, or the heat of the battle, um, your adrenaline's going and, and uh, it's not that difficult. It's just when you come down from it and you're kind of done with the case and, you know, you're on your way home and trying to get a little bit of sleep and it's just, you, you balance it. You learn to deal with it as a resident and fellow. And it's again, it's just part of what, what we do and you deal with it. Yeah. It's um, I, I, I just more power to you, you know, coming from someone, I was just in the emergency room at seven o'clock in the morning a week ago because it was in the, part of COVID for me. And I ended up with some back spasms. It turns out due to, I have asthma. So of course the coughing is a little bit more, it's bad enough for a general COVID patient, but then having asthma on top of that, but we weren't sure the doctor wasn't sure. Did I have kidney stones? Could I be having an aneurysm like my mom um, passed six months ago with that? So they were really concerned and they put me in a CT scan with contrast fluid. And that, I don't know if you've ever had one, but you feel like you're going to self combust and then you feel like you're going to wet yourself. And no one ever explains this to you ahead of time. Not one of the 11,000 patients that we support through the way to my heart network that have had these scans. Not one has been transparent or candid about their experience. So here I am thinking everyone else has done this. I'm going to go in there. No problem. And I thought I was going to explode from the inside out. My whole body got hot. Anyway, there, yeah, that is that is interesting because when we do the angiograms, so the patients in the cath lab were injecting contrast, and they always say, "Oh, I think I just wet myself." And <laughs> we should tell them ahead of time. We said, "No, that's just part of the sensation. You're all good." But to your point, we we probably could do a better job of prepping them. <laughs> I just thought, oh my gosh, how embarrassing! All my other you know, people that we support and are friends with in our network have had this done. And here I am being a weenie, you know, it's crazy. But anyway, there was nothing else that was wrong with me, except they found a fibroid, a seven centimeter fibroid. And they told me to go back to my gynecologist and actually go talk about it. But how interesting was that? And that's why I thought, you know what? I'm hearing more and more of some of the doctors that are treating vascular issues that are also treating these fibroids in minimally invasive ways. And so that's why I really wanted to, to do this show and to, to talk more about it. And we also have our nurse practitioner, Kay Smith, who's here, who has learned since having a hysterectomy in her 20s that now minimally invasive procedures are possible. 
Kay, do you want to jump in and, and quickly share your story as we move into break? Of course, certainly. I mean, I was um, I was having a baby. Um, I had gave birth at six o'clock in the morning. Everything was fine. Three hours later, I hemorrhaged really badly. And they said that the womb could not contract due to fibroid in the lining of the womb. And one hour later, at the age of 24, I had a hysterectomy. Wow. If only we had minimally invasive options available. We're going to talk about those Coming up next, right here on The Break, we have Dr. Mary Costantino um, from the Northwest joining us live to answer all of your questions about fibroids and these new minimally invasive treatment options. So stay with us. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 atherectomy system, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, we are talking about fibroids. And trust me, there is a vascular connection. Little one, but there is a vascular connection. Prior to the break, we were talking to nurse practitioner Kay Smith, who is also um, a a patient. She actually had a a hysterectomy back in her 20s uh, due to fibroids and is now just learning that there are minimally invasive options. And during the break, we were talking to Dr. Mary Constantino, and she is from Oregon. Mary, is that right? Portland, Oregon. Yep. Portland, Oregon. And she was informing us that she has been interested in minimally invasive options for fibroids since 1999. Yep. So third year of med school, I worked with the guy who did the first cases in the United States, Scott Goodwin, and was immediately smitten with it. You're kidding. Where was that? Where did you go to school? Uh, UCLA. And then I did a fellowship with Jim Spees at Georgetown, who did all of the early by and by that like the first 10 years of research on the procedure UAE minimally invasive treatment was first described in 1995. Wow and so can we go back to the basics what are fibroids so the most I know about a fibroid is it's some sort of extra tissue kind of like a benign tumor that grows inside the uterus and people there's a debate as to why people get them who gets them Mm -hmm. and such. Yep. So fibroids are very common. 40% of women at the age of 40 and up to 80% of African-American women, more prevalent in African-American women, um, but commonly affect Caucasian, Asian, Hispanic. 
Um, in my mind, you know, our lack of knowledge about fibroids is one of the great healthcare disparities of all time that is finally being brought to light now with, um, it's just five, people are finally focusing on fibroids. So Kamala Harris had some initiatives and you're now seeing the states requiring that minimally invasive treatment be offered to women with fibroids. So for the last forever, if you've had a fibroid and you've had heavy bleeding, your doctor just says, well, yeah, you're not having any more kids have a hysterectomy. So the generation of, I'm you know, almost 50, my generation and every generation above us really was just offered hysterectomy. And commonly women didn't really even know they had fibroids. They just knew they had really heavy bleeding and their doctor did a hysterectomy. And what is a hysterectomy? Can you describe what it is and why you need a minimally invasive option at least to try first? Right. Well, a hysterectomy is just surgical removal of the uterus. And if you act, ask, talk to women who have fibroids and you ask them about their mothers, their aunts, um, they'll say, oh, yeah, every female in my family has had a hysterectomy. So because so many uteri are being taken out, we don't actually know much about them because nobody's cared. Everyone's just said, oh, you have a hysterectomy, your problem solved. So Mary, um, real quickly, what percentage, so it, it sounds like the biggest symptom that people have is, is heavy, heavy bleeding. Uh, is that it? Or, or is that, is that, is no. that what Oh, no, there, there's pain. Yeah. So the <laughs> symptoms, so there's the textbook and then what we really see. The, the number one symptom we talk about is heavy bleeding. And when I'm with the patients I treat have periods the last seven to 10 days, they usually have three to five heavy days. And in those heavy days, they are changing a tampon, a super tampon and a pad every hour. And that's not normal. That's very abnormal. They bleed through their clothes. So here are some risk factors. If you're bleeding through your clothes, if you're having to get up at night to change a tampon or pad, that disrupts your sleep. If you're worried about plane flights, If you're driving your kids to school and you know where all the bathrooms are, if you're scheduling your work meetings, if you're calling out from work because you can't stand, you can't be at work all day. These are women who cannot make it through something like what we're doing now because they're going to bleed through their clothes. So that constant stress for them of, am I going to make it through something for two hours? I mean, you know, Dr. Phillips, you and I do cases. Sometimes they last more than two hours. These are women who can't stand to do it, can't stand to do an operation because they are bleeding so heavily. Now, the problem is, is that when you go to your doctor and the, your doctor will say, are your periods normal? Those women will say, yes, that's not the right question. The question is, tell me about your periods. How many days do you bleed? How, how often do you change a pad or tampon? Because these women, the bleeding gradually increases to a point where these women are literally exsanguating every month. It puts an enormous amount of stress on their body because they bleed out every month and then they get, you know, 15 days to recover. So their bone marrow and just everything comes back into play. And so often these women are not anemic. I was going to say, so does some of them get to the point where they're anemic and they need blood transfusion? What's crazy crazy about this is their labs are usually always normal. And so if you don't treat these women, you just say, oh, this can't be that big of a deal. You're not anemic. But they are. And I think it's the gradual. I'm not sure I fully understand why, but the anemia does not match the loss of blood. And we know this because if you send patients for iron transfusion before you treat them, they will immediately feel better. And as soon as you embolize them and you stop the bleeding, so not only does the bleeding go away, they feel amazing. 
they feel like they've gotten their life back. They have energy back. They can do things. They didn't realize how much of like a fog they had been living in with this anemia, but it's not an anemia we can detect by a lab value. So you have, the doctor has to ask the questions. Other symptoms to touch on, pain, pressure, feeling like you have to pee a lot. Your fibroids, fibroids can grow to be 15, the size of a football, a basketball, with having no heavy bleeding. All you feel is pressure in your abdomen. And women say, oh, I thought I was just gaining weight. Rare symptoms. I've had a patient with 25 centimeter fibroid who wasn't eating and she didn't realize she lost all of her breast tissue. She had gastric ulcers from the pressure of the fibroid, but because it was such a slow growing mass that grew and grew and grew, it just took up space in her abdomen and she just felt funny and heavy and kind of tired and awful, never had heavy bleeding. The time to treat is when they're symptomatic. Um, I don't particularly love that because what we do is we say, okay, you have fibroids. Okay, Kim, you have a seven centimeter fibroid. Just let it grow until you're really miserable. Yeah, I guess that was my next question. Kim. Yeah. You, you have no symptoms or do you have symptoms? For me, I just noticed that every other month that one menstrual cycle is a little bit more painful and a little heavier than the other, at least at this point. But at 46 years old, I'm curious for me that maybe now I don't need treated necessarily, but I have frozen my eggs and still want to have kids. Will I, will I treat you in a heartbeat. Yeah, no. So one big misnomer is that these fibroids go away at menopause. So again, that's a textbook thing that is not what it happens in real life because it's never been studied. So that idea that fibroids go away in menopause is very misleading. First of all, menopause is a long road for a lot of people. It's not like menopause. So Kim, if you, if I told you you're going to go through menopause in one year, you could be dealing with that. You could be dealing with your hormones can be fluctuating for the next five, five years. Your Mm -hmm. fibroids are tumors. Tumors are programmed to grow. So they are going to, you know, want to grow. And on that note, we're going to be right back and leave you with that little cliffhanger. So stay with us right here on the Heart of Innovation. Medical Notepad, brought to you by patient advocacy organizations, take a stand against amputation, and the way to my heart. If you have been diagnosed with peripheral arterial disease, also known as PAD, which is a buildup of plaque in the arteries of the legs, it is time to see a specialist. But who specializes in PAD? Hi, I'm Dr. Kumar Madisari, a vascular and interventional radiologist at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. So who are the PAD specialists? There are four main types of healthcare providers that may treat PAD. There are variations in practices as well as within doctors of each practice. Vascular surgeons who may have the ability to treat PAD can use endovascular techniques, which means minimally invasive approaches and bypass surgery as well as amputation to treat PAD. Interventional cardiologists treat PAD as well as coronary artery disease using endovascular techniques. Vascular and interventional radiologists such as myself practice every day using endovascular techniques to treat diseases such as PAD as well as cancer amongst others. Vascular medicine physicians may treat PAD as well, however, without surgery or endovascular techniques, rather using medical therapy such as walking programs and other modalities. It is not uncommon for a patient to see a vascular medicine physician along with a vascular surgeon, interventional cardiologist, and interventional radiologist 
for long-term management of their PAD. What is important is that when you ask your primary care physician for a referral to a vascular specialist treating PAD, you do your homework. All may have on their title that they treat PAD. However, the practice patterns may be very different and the treatments may not be the same. It is important to learn the advanced tools and techniques available for treating PAD and ensuring that the doctor you choose can exhaust all of them prior to amputation. I'm Dr. Kumar Madisari, vascular interventional radiologist at Rush University Medical Center. Medical Notepad is a series for educational and informational purposes only. Advice offered is not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this series without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. For more information on peripheral artery disease, go to standagainstamputation.com. And for peripheral artery disease support, go to thewaytomyheart.org. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back. We're talking about fibroids and how they just, if you leave them alone, they may just keep on growing. We have Dr. Mary Constantino from Portland, Oregon, who has been treating these for more than 20 years. We have nurse practitioner Kay, of course, here. She had a hysterectomy when she was in her her 20s, and she's shared her story. And Dr. John Phillips, of course, he is joining us as well. And we want to get into, you know, Mary, you know, some of the treatment options. You were talking about minimally invasive treatment options. What are those that are now available? Uh, Well, uterine artery embolization is the treatment I do. Um, I do a catheter-based procedure where I kill off the blood supply to the fibroids. It's 95% effective for heavy bleeding. I do it through a little incision in the wrist. So I just go in. There's no cutting. Just put a little catheter. like It's like a long IV from the wrist. It takes me about 10 seconds to get down into the uterus. And the whole procedure takes about 35, 40 minutes. Um, it can also be done from the groin access, from a groin artery. But the minimally invasive nature of it means there's no cutting, there's no general anesthesia. Um, it's a quick recovery time, one-week recovery time versus hysterectomy, which would be about a six-week recovery time. My, uh, I think the most important thing for women is that they know that they have options and they are well-educated. In this day and age, when we are telling women that they should have to have a hysterectomy for their fibroid, that is not proper informed consent. Because unless they've heard about all of their treatment options, which include myomectomy, which is surgical removal of fibroid, uterine artery embolization, hysterectomy, hormonal control, or doing nothing, those are your options. There are lots of options. And so what's really important for women to take away from this segment is that if you don't want to have a hysterectomy, you don't need to. Now, the person you go... Go ahead. So can I ask you a question? Walk us through the process for when you first meet a patient, um, what kind of testing have they had? Who have they seen before you lab work, things of that nature, and then ultimately to the decision to do something or do nothing. Well, yeah, good, good point. So the patients for me will come from all over. I get patients from all over the country and kind of finding me in various ways. Um, but many people who have symptoms will go to their gynecologist and their gynecologist will recommend hysterectomy. And it ends at that. Um, 
And the women who are really pushing to know their options and to say, hey, I, I don't want hysterectomy. This isn't for me. This doesn't feel right. We'll start to get online and research. Women these days are a powerful bunch. We are not taking things like it's, we're not in the 40s anymore. We're not just doing what our what our doctors tell us, um, which I think is great. They're very informed. So we do a clinic visit and I'm going to make sure you're clinically appropriate to be treated. I also do a lot of education around fibroids in my clinic visit. Usually people have not had that much education. So all the questions, how do these grow and what happens to them and are these symptoms? And most of the time women are saying that, oh, I that's a symptom of my fibroids. I have to pee all the time. I had no idea that's related. So people have a really, they don't um, have a way to connect their fibroid to what they're feeling. So I'll help them with that. Then I always require an MRI before embolization. Often we're looking for other things like adenomyosis, which can be confused with fibroids. Adenomyosis is another condition in the uterus that causes a lot of cramping and heavy bleeding. We can still do embolization for um, adenomyosis. Then the patient will go through all of her treatment options, and then the patient will talk about what's right for her. If she's still hoping to have children, um, just doesn't want to lose her uterus. That's another thing I've noticed is that although many women do want to have children and need a uterus to do that, the idea that we correlate the desire to have children with the desire to keep your uterus is not accurate. Because I have talked to thousands of women who say, I know I don't want any other kids, but I just, I just want to keep my uterus. Yeah. So it's a, it's a mystery why we, why we put those things together. And women used to be a little bit apologetic about it, but now, now they're just being a lot more, um, you know, a lot more honest about how they're feeling really helps guide treatment decisions. And we have Monique that's actually on the line. She's calling in from Alberta, Canada. Monique, um, do you want to jump in? Inside Uh, question. Hi. Um, I had a fibroid, a bleeding fibroid. I actually bled for five years straight. Um, When he took my uterus out, I ended up with uh, the the pathology from it came back as leomyoma. I have to look at it because leomyoma. Leomyoma. Leomyomatosis. Leomyomatosis. It came up with bizarre nuclei. So then uh, it was uh, checked by immunohistochemistry for fumarate hydrase. And that came back as a retained expression, but a normal expression. So I don't know what that's supposed to mean. (laughs) Um, But the question I had is just like how, how, I mean, I went five years and mostly because COVID kept screwing up my surgery so I lost my surgery four times before it actually happened. Mm. Um, I'm just curious on, you know, like how long should you be worrying? Like he tried everything to stop my bleeding. He went, did ablation, found out I had a bicornate uterus. So then I had to have MRIs and, you know. So much. It's probably and, not a new story for you, huh, Dr. Costantino? <laughs> not at all. You needed, I would have embolized you after that first year, your bleeding would have stopped and it all would have been over with. So yeah. when you've, there's no, you I had ask, one period that lasted six months and I had one period that lasted eight months and heavy wow. periods, not. Yeah, I would never have let you have kept bleeding. I would have embolized you. It, uterine artery embolization has other roles. So it's, it's wonderful to treat uterine fibroids. It also can be used in postpartum hemorrhage. So 
any any time you have a uterine a uterus bleeding, you can do an embolization. You can have a AV fistula. If you have a DNC, you can have an AV fistula. Anytime a uterus is bleeding, you can do an embolization and it stops the bleeding. This is what embolization does. It's just, it's like if you have a trauma and you've got a knife wound, you do an embolization. The word embolization means stops bleeding. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was very you know, happy gonna... to get rid of my uterus. So just saying. <laughs> At that point, I think that you would probably be happy I mean, if you don't have any I other know, options. But it still didn't, you know, even I got the uterus out and then three weeks later I had a vaginal vault. So I couldn't win with that one, but yeah. Well, thank you for sharing, Monique. And Dr. Mary Constituta will be right back with her talking more about who treats these fibroids with the minimally invasive options. That's coming up next right here on the Heart of Innovation. So stay with us. Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking. Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me. Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age. Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal. Yeah, it turns out we all have peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg, but that does not have to happen to you. No, it does not because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough. PAD peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are the Way to My Heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients, and we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our LegSaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your life and limb could depend on it. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This show is all about fibroids, but you might be wondering why are we talking about fibroids when we mainly talk about vascular issues? Well, Fibroids can actually be a slight indicator of cardiovascular risk. Fibroids have been associated with hypertension, atherosclerosis, um, and some recommend using fibroids as a marker for future cardiovascular disease. There was one study that I looked at that shows cardiovascular risk factors were slightly more common for women with fibroids than for women without fibroids. Dr. Mary Constantino is with us. Is that unusual or do you find there is a strong association or correlation between the two? Well, the, the patients I'm usually treating are in their 30s, 40s, and very early 50s. Um, I have noticed hypertension. I, I would say that when I'm monitoring patients during their procedure, it seems like an abnormal amount of them are hypertensive. I did also have a patient, my first time I've ever heard of this, uh, she actually went into congestive heart failure and was actually in the ICU for several days, wow. uh, believed to be due to her anemia. But it's a great point. We know very little about 
um, what individual fibroids do to each patient's body. The fibroids are all really different looking on MRI. MRI will look at protein and water content. So your fibroids versus the next gal's fibroids will all look different, which means they have to act different cellularly in people's bodies. Uh, how, Mary, how well is our understanding of fibroids just in general? Very uh, poor. Okay. So, we know we know 5% of what we need to know. Is there a lot of basic science research into fibroids or, or not really? It seems like it's a bit of an orphan disease. It's an orphan disease. And that is why this is, again, like a huge healthcare disparity um, because it is the number one tumor in women. It's the number one indication for hysterectomy. And we know very little about it. Even minimally invasive uterine artery embolization, which was started in 1995, to this day, we are in 2022. So what is that, almost 30 years? Most women are not hearing about minimally invasive treatments. So why is that? Why is more research not being done or is it being done? It's because you're, you're talking about this wide time span that nothing's been done. We're still not mainstream with it. Yeah, I think you have to have, we've spent the last 25 years in the world of you have a fibroid, you go to your doctor and they say, you go to your gynecologist and they say you need a hysterectomy. It's not until, you know, interventional radiology, we started to to do minimally invasive treatments. And this really has forced people to say, you know, you don't need to have a hysterectomy. Okay, if you don't need to have a hysterectomy, now what do we need to know about fibroids? Because here, here, and I know this is a sticky question, but you got to ask. I mean, is it an issue of the re- of cost effectiveness and reimbursement that would make a hysterectomy higher in reimbursement? They both seem like one-time procedures, and yep. one might reimburse better than the other one. Yes, this is you. You're asking the hard questions, and I'm going to give you a direct answer. When I got into this in 1999, part of it was. This was a less expensive procedure than hysterectomy. It got women back to work within a week versus six weeks. So if you're working, you're a working woman and you have to take six weeks off, there's no guarantee you're going to have a job when you go back, nor could you necessarily afford to take six weeks off. So you don't get treated. Um, So you have the financial aspect of the hysterectomy being more expensive. You have the public health aspect of getting women back to work, back to doing the things they need to be doing. And the person who controlled, this is going to sound terrible, but the person who kind of controlled that patient and that uterus was the gynecologist. And they they don't make any money if that person goes and has a uterine artery embolization. They only make their money on the hysterectomy. Now, I will say that I feel in the Pacific Northwest, we don't have quite as much of that here. This very much seemed to lead in like the South and the East Coast you know, there are some locational differences, geographic differences on how this is approached. In 2009, the Gynecology Society said, we ha- you have to be offering UAE. There's so much data behind UAE. You have to offer it to your patient. It's still not offered. Where does a patient go? Are there support groups out there that they can go online and find? The, there's Facebook support groups that are so good. And I have um, been a guest on those where I've been invited to answer questions I have, I am so impressed with what the patients know. These women are smart. They are making good decisions. They are listening to what they're gathering information. Sometimes support groups don't, it doesn't correlate with the medical. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I don't know if that's really right. I'm telling you these fibroid support groups for patients, patient led are very, very, very good. And that is what has advanced options. That's what's advanced fibroid treatment has been the patients themselves. So who is leading the way in terms of treatment? for 
these fibroids using minimally invasive tools and techniques. You're an interventional radiologist. Is that the only practice that is doing it? Yes. And there are people now starting to get into it who are not um, interventional radiologists. I have a strong bias against that only because I think that embolization is different than endovascular vascular treatment. So it, these are, this is killing organs. And so interventional radiology, we do tumor embolization in the liver. Uh, we do tumor embolization all over the body. So embolization is a whole segment. I mean, I did a fellowship. I did over 200 cases my fellowship year. So you really can't just put a catheter somewhere and say, oh, I, because I can get a catheter there, I can embolize. But where does a patient go to find someone as specialized as you? Um, interventional radiology website. So our society, Society of Interventional Radiology, or you can also just Google search UAE or uterine artery embolization or minimally invasive fibroid treatment. And lots will come up on the internet or go to my website. I do also like, and, and what is your website before I give the other? Advancedvascularcenters.com. Okay, advancedvascularcenters.com. And also you mentioned the Society for Interventional Radiologists. Their website, I think, has one of the best doctor finders available because what they do is they segment it and say, what type of treatment are you looking for? And you can actually specifically target those doctors that are listed as treating that particular disease. Now, coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we'll get to more questions from some patients and we'll um, have more on fibroids coming up. So stay with us. Well, hey, everyone. My name is Dr. David Alper, and I'm here once again with the weightofmyheart.org's footnotes. And today we're going to talk about dry, cracking skin on the bottoms of the feet. Why are we talking about dry, cracking skin? Well, first of all, it hurts. But the real problem is that very often the treatments that people give at home are worse than the problem itself. So it's important to know, as with most things, of the proper things to do and to not do. The reason that the skin cracks so much is that when circulation is poor from PAD or diabetes, the moisture does not get to the skin on the inside. And that means you need to moisturize it on the outside. But first, you need to prepare the skin. What you don't want to prepare the skin with is something like this, these little hand scrapers, because it's basically like this. It's a cheese grater. And all this is is sharp pieces of metal that are scraping skin. If you have poor feeling, if you have diabetic neuropathy, you're not going to know if you go too deep. And even if you do have good feeling, it's very easy to tear your skin. You're much better off with a pumice stone or some type of a buffer that's not going to go too deep. The best time to do it is after the shower. You can do it in the shower, but please make sure you have something to sit on. Standing on one leg in the shower trying to rub your feet is a real recipe for disaster. Once you've gotten the dead skin off, it's time to moisturize. And there's a wide range of materials to use. The key ingredient is lanolin. Lanolin is the best thing that we find to try to bring moisture to your skin. If you have very, very thick, cracking, dry skin, the treatment to do is before you go to bed at night, you take some good cream and you put it onto your heel and put a good amount. You then take a plastic bag, like a vegetable bag from the supermarket, you put it over your foot, and then you take a sock and you put the sock over the plastic bag. And then you go to sleep. Why do you do it this way? This is called putting it under occlusion. It is going to make the foot 
warm, which opens up the sweat pores, which gets the cream in. You want to make sure you put a sock on because you don't want to try and walk on a plastic bag at 2 in the morning to the bathroom. Another recipe for disaster. You do this every day for two weeks. You will find your skin as soft as a baby's bottom. You can get rid of the socks. You can get rid of the bags. Just moisturize on a daily basis, and your skin should not crack, and you should be quite comfortable. For further information, please go on the websites of APMA.org or American Diabetes Association, ADA.org, and, of course, the weightofmyheart.org. This is Dr. David Alper. We'll see you again with another footnote soon. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advantage, stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 atherectomy system, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. The show, short segment here. I want to get right to, we have another patient question for Dr. Mary Costantino. We are talking about fibroids. Uh, Nurse practitioner Kay, Who's the question from and what is the question? Yes, certainly it's from Carmi. And she's asking, are poor women on government insurance able to have this type of treatment? And are the doctors available to them? Yes. In fact, um, I got our organ health plan to cover UAE when I, uh, back in about 2011 or 12. And all government insurances in the United States should cover UAE. Thank you so much. And I think we have Douglas that's on the line. Douglas, uh, it's interesting. We have a man asking a question. Are, Douglas, you have a question about fibroids? Yeah, uh, great show. Uh, it's important to talk about the ladies and their issues. I love listening. But what about solutions do you have for men who have lost like sexual function due to arthrosclerosis in the arteries, including my PAD? I wrote an article in WebMD talking about the reality of sexual dysfunction and it playing a major role in my depression and having relationships. But I also heard some interventional cardiologists and radiologists know how to check for artery blockage to the male parts. <laughs> Is that true? And what? who does it and when? That's a great question. <laughs> that's, that's definitely, uh, you know, a real uh, health care issue for, for males not necessarily embolizing the problems within the, um, you know, peripheral arterial disease for sexual dysfunction, but what about prostate health for men? Well, yeah, the prostate artery embolization is a, it's here to stay. 
It is exactly like uterine artery embolization. It can be done in a minimally invasive way through the wrist, and it avoids the consequence of sexual dysfunction following a TERP. A TERP is the traditional surgical procedure that's offered. So for all the men with large prostates who have to pee and, you know, can't sleep overnight, um, they should look into prostate artery embolization. And it's not you know, something that's covered by insurance? Mostly, it still, still sometimes has to be battled out with certain insurance companies, but mostly. Wow. Thank you, Douglas, for that question. You know, actually, I think that's a really good idea. That, do you think we could do an entire show on that? topic maybe next saturday i I would imagine i I would imagine we could find some time to talk about it yeah i think that that would be really interesting so join us next saturday uh douglas and we'll be talking more on that as well but back to fibroids i want to wrap up this this show um you've given some great advice but i want to have you mary talk about just a few of the key takeaways i think how does a woman find a a doctor who does that um, number one. And number two is how do you know when you need some sort of treatment, minimally invasive uh, for these fibroids? Like for me, with mine being seven centimeters, do I wait until I am ready to get pregnant and then do something about it? Or is that something that I do now? The you know time to treat is very individual and requires a doctor to listen to you, listen to your goals, listen to your symptoms, and offer you all of the different options that um, are out there. So that's, I have an answer for you, Kim, but <laughs> my, but it would be more of a conversation. We'd have to have a little bit offline on that one. But so I would say the number one thing is if you have symptoms, they are real. And when you are bleeding, changing a pad or tampon more than like once every two hours, that's heavy bleeding. So, so being, feeling validated in your symptoms, your bulk symptoms, your need. Um, number two, the second takeaway, if you go online and Google search interventional radiology, you know, fibroids, lots will come up. You can also always call me. I can connect you to anyone across the country. Um, what is that website again? Because we're wrapping up your website. Advancedvascularcenters.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Mary Costituna. We really appreciate you. We have to wrap up here at the Heart of Innovation. Go ahead and go to Dr. Costituna's website um, if you have any further questions about fibroids. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. For Dr. Phillips, say say goodbye, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Phillips. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist, Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist, Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and take a stand against amputation. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. 
The heart of innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network.